This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Interesting to watch the proceedings at Hamilton City Hall these days. There's an understatement. But uh, they are plodding along through the budget process and trying to find ways to make money and save money. Uh, That's obviously in the best interest of we, the taxpayers. And the city of Hamilton is wanting to keep the golf courses green. Now, there has been a lot of talk about what to do with all this land. The Hamilton uh, golf courses, uh, well, there's tons of them around here, but the ones that are owned by Hamilton Hamilton themselves, uh, the two at Shidoak, right across the road from us here, and, of course, Kings Forest on the east end. Joining us to talk about this and and a couple of other things is Tom Jackson. He is the counselor for Ward 6 in the East Mountain and always a welcome guest on the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, counselor. How are you today? Bill, in spite of my cold, I only agreed to come on your show when your Liz Russell offered me a cup of tea. Thank you. <laughs> That'll work every time. It's uh, I think we're sending it up to your house right now. Thank you, so, Bill. Be on the show. <laughs> Good. Listen, let, let's talk about the golf courses first, Tom. Uh, as long as you've been on council, there's always been talk about, hey, do we really need three golf courses? Uh, should we sell off some of this land? I remember a few years ago during that Rocker Stadium debate, there was even some talk about putting the stadium over at one of the golf courses here in the West End. Uh, what what motivated council to actually ask for this report in the first place? Well, Bill, it's all part of that land development task force that council approved about a year ago uh, under the mayor's initiative to look at our approximately 2,000 properties that the city owns across the uh, municipality and just see if there was uh, possible opportunities. Is there something that's dormant? Is there something that's been inactive? Is there something that could be repurposed? possibly sold, reused in a different manner, should it be just preserved the way it is. So that's kind of like how this uh, whole review and study came about, Bill, and as we're going through the 2017 operating budget, it's kind of running concurrently uh, with that process at this time. All right. Now, let's talk a little bit about the report that uh, that was released yesterday that, uh, that you guys were talking about around the council table. And, uh, and uh, Facilities Director Rome D'Angelo, of course, was the guy who was kind of riding point on this thing right now. I, I'm looking at some of the numbers here, Tom, and notwithstanding the fact that Council decided uh, to, to not pursue the idea of what to do with that land, uh, it's got to be a little distressing to see the numbers, especially at the Shadok Golf Courses, are down. So, Bill, ironically, as a guy who's not a golfer, I've always been one who, I'll be very honest with your listeners, but I'm... I'm I'm wanting to hear after I get off the show if uh, times and attitudes have changed, but going back over the years, I've always been one on council who has said that uh, the prestigious green space of the three courses, the two at Shadok, the uh, Martin and Badeau, and the King's Forest at the East End, are worth preserving, uh, both for the green space and for the affordability, the accessibility, and the availability of our taxpayers who may, be, who may wish to golf, who otherwise couldn't afford, let's say, a $5,000 membership at a private course, but could afford uh, playing in one of our municipal courses, of which they paid for through their taxes over the years. So I've been one over the years, to be quite honest, who has, uh, has fought against any notion of uh, privatization or private-public partnership with the courses. But right now before us, Bill, we have, I'll call it a conflation of three uh, directions. One is uh, the ward councillor, Aidan Johnson, where the Shadok golf course is along Aberdeen Avenue in the escarpment there where the uh, Shadok stairs are. He got approval from council to see if there was opportunity to possibly uh, repurpose one of those golf courses. So instead of needing two 18-hole golf courses in Shadok, could we possibly uh, shutter one of them and repurpose it for other recreational uses? As you recall, Bill, when you were on council back in the early 2000s, <clears throat> we had a Shadok ski hill there and needed uh, much more modern equipment, capital, investment. 
and the council of the day simply said, given the usage at the time, it just wasn't worth the investment. So that's number one conflation. Number two conflation instruction from Councillor Collins the other day was that, look, we, um, we, we should look at uh, bringing in possible private-public partnerships to especially invest in the clubhouses, uh, make them more attractive, get more tournaments here, increase the usage, and have a private-public partner that would invest similar bill to what I've had since 2003 with the uh, Mohawk Four Ice Center up in my ward at Mohawk Sports Park, the Quad Pad Arena, that's been a fabulous, successful private-public partnership where the new stadia, the manager, has made money, the city has made money over the years, and above all, users have had primetime ice for tournaments, old-timers, girls' hockey, things like that. That second conflation, Councillor Collins basically saying not to sell off land, but to uh, maintain it, but uh, look at getting a private partner in that may want to upgrade the clubhouse. Lastly, I wanna, oh, before I get to your last point, I want to yeah. talk about that because... Uh, I actually chaired a committee my last term on council uh, that was looking at doing that and trying to find partners. And uh, we got, oh gosh, I mean, probably 30, 40 different people that wanted to jump in on this. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know some of the names, and so do our, many of our listeners know some of the names. Club links and places like that were yes. interested in doing this. But at the end of the day, as the staff and the council of that day, as a matter of fact, decided, no, we're, we're going to let this little group of city workers do the whole thing themselves. And it got, nothing got done. Uh, it, so it's, it sounds wonderful to say let's look for private-public partners, but I don't know, I'm not so sure there's a willingness to do that, Tom, on council. You, you, the example you used of the arena is sensational, and it's it's Thank a you. fabulous working model for how they should be doing this right now. But it just seems that if they want to maintain the status quo and just have somebody else come in here and do all the capital jobs, you're not going to find anybody. So fair enough, Bill, and you're accurate from the historical standpoint. But again, uh, the Councillor Collins' direction was to actually now once again invite that uh, private investor, see what interest is out there, but primarily to see what they could do to upgrade the clubhouse and make that more attractive for banquets, weddings, along with tournaments, things like that. The third conflation, which isn't public knowledge, but I've, it's come to my attention, um, the numbers are down, as you know, Bill, in terms of golfing at our courses. Uh, they've been basically for more or less 10 years a break-even proposition, fair enough. But um, the other conflation is that I believe staff, and this isn't public knowledge and may never see the light of day, they were in light of the uh, decline in golf usage, and with the two courses at Oak, they were looking at possibly shuttering one of the courses and looking at what possible land development use with council support only might be forthcoming down the road. So you've got all these three conflations, Bill. Aiden Johnson, is there repurposing? Councillor Collins, let's get a private investor in for the clubhouse. And the possibility, not public knowledge, that is there opportunities if we're going to shutter the Martin or the Badeau and what we can do with that prestigious land along the 403. But again, Bill, this is where I'm wondering if times have changed. I'll be listening to your show and your listeners after I get off the air. Have attitudes changed and saying, you know what, it's worth looking at opportunities or that pr- prestigious 270 acres of prime green space is too valuable to give up? Well, and, I, and that's not, I, I'm interested that council and, and maybe even staff are considering that because it's not a new idea. That was, it's been floated around for years and, and, and past councillors have really just given a thumbs down and hadn't wanted to go there. But if the numbers are going to continue to go down like this, uh, 
you know, this is this is like when you want to list your house, Tom, and you figure, you know what, I better put a coat of paint on it and cl- cut the grass and make it look nice because I want to get the maximum money for it. You've got to do something with these two courses at Shadok here if you want somebody to come in and manage them because right now they're not a very good deal for anybody. Uh, you know, th- right now, basically what you're asking is, come on in here, fix that clubhouse up and maintain these things for us. Uh, you know, in other words, put all the capital money into it, but it's it's not an attractive property right now. I mean, it, it's beautiful. But well, as, as, Bill, as golf course right. managers, you've got some work to do here. Bill, you're right, and we'll have to see if council wants to go down that third path, if staff are going to bring an official report forward with the official numbers and saying this is another hypothetical opportunity. We'll have to see if there's a mood on council in the community to say, look, as council is struggling to keep taxes as close to inflation as possible, reviewing the 2,000 pieces of property we have across the city, do we need some of them? Don't we need some of them? Is there an opportunity here? But I'll tell you, Bill, it's going to be an interesting competing interest here. Uh, and you're right, the stadium once was considered amongst many locations along Longwood Road there in the uh, McMaster Innovation Park at one time when we were moving the uh, stadium around several spots across the city before we landed where we did. So, Bill, I think it's a matter of now, is there a mood on council? And more importantly, is the community saying, you know, times have changed, Let's city council should explore opportunities and see what's out there. Well, and, and I understand, which is why you set up this committee. I get that, all right, the uh, the Land Development Task Force. Correct. But I, I'm going to open an old wound here, Tom, from, yes. from way back when, because it seems to happen every year at budget time, but maybe because of the that you're on right now, maybe it's time to actually have this conversation. Uh, you've got to start doing an evaluation on what you own and, and do you really need it. And we started asking those questions, if you'll recall, back after amalgamation. You know, uh, you know, Ontario law requires you to have two, uh, you know, retirement homes, or one, rather. Per, we have two. Uh, we don't need three golf courses, but we have three golf courses. Do we really need three golf courses? You know, and all these other facilities. And I know that every time you say, yeah, let's think about that, they fill the council chambers with people that say, don't do it, don't do it, and council invariably would back down from that. But, you know, if we're in this crunch, and we are, and if you're looking for ways to save money, is it about time that you started to have this conversation to say maybe we have to divest ourselves of some of this stuff, these these assets, because especially in the case of the golf courses, it's going to cost you a lot of money to keep these up, to maintain them, uh, the capital improvements that are needed at both facilities right now. And, and maybe maybe it's time for the city to get out of the golf business, or at least part of it anyway. Bill, I think the Land Development Task Force is timely. Uh, I, I'm really enjoying going through the review of all our buildings, parks, golf courses, uh, airports we own, etc. All the land that we own on behalf of taxpayers, this is an important, timely exercise. I'm not going to mislead anyone, Bill, and say that I'm there now to uh, selling off half of the 270 acres at Shadok. But uh, I'm just keeping an open mind and seeing where this uh, study and review is going, Bill. And I want lots of input as well from the community on both sides of it, pro-development as well as preservation of conservation conservation areas. All right. Along the same lines, Tom, at the meeting yesterday, I know you and Councillor Collins and a few others uh, had some questions of staff about what was going on with uh, the arena, First Ontario Centre. I, I know that the you know, Jasper Kajavski put a, a group together and they were yep. doing a feasibility study. Uh, I know that you and some others expressed some interest that maybe this process is getting away from you and, and council is not being informed. What's the status there and what are your concerns? Well, Bill, I'll tell you, it's been, it's been quiet. And so this study that 
I believe, through the mayor's office, uh, put $50,000 of taxpayer money with the guarantee that about $200,000 of private uh, money was forthcoming, led by Jasper Kajaski, to do a re- review and study of First Ontario Centre and to see exactly current status, future, what do we want to do with the arena? Do we want to, you know, upgrade it? Do we want to just do uh, basic retrofits? Do we want that, you know, one more shot at that fabulous NHL dream, which I think has come and gone? And I've been part of, I think, three uh, overtures, Bill, along with you, that let us at least uh, three. a bridesmaid every single time. And uh, so I'm eagerly looking forward to that report, but it's been quiet. So if there's uh, somebody at City Hall that's aware of the outcome and the results of that report and the options before us, I'm eagerly looking forward to seeing what it is. But word on the street right now, Bill, I can't verify this, but word on the street right now is talking about a minimum of 60 to $80 million to do something serious with that facility. And, and that's, I mean, the number one question here, Tom, is, as you know, is do we even need an arena that big? And, and I'm not so sure that, that you can get a positive answer to that. I mean, I, you know, I used the example the other day. I mean, I was at the Garth Brooks show a year ago, but, you know, sure. you know, the sold-out shows. Those are wonderful, but Garth yes. Brooks isn't coming every night. Uh, and, you know, the Bulldogs, sorry, just can't fill the arena. I mean, you know, the AHL Bulldogs can't, the Junior A Bulldogs can't fill that arena. And you got to ask yourself, you know, is it really worthwhile for us to maintain a 30-year-old building and, and do the kind of work that needs to be done? I, I can remember back when there was still a Hecfly board, Tom, and yes. you and I both worked uh, diligently with that board. But I remember yeah. talking to Gabe Macalusa, who was managing the facilities at, th- sure. at the time, and he says, "You guys don't even know how much it costs to just turn on the lights at this place." Yeah. And you know, and any time you open the doors, you know, there are union costs. You have to, you know, the cost of making the ice, etc. Uh, that's a, that's a substantial amount of money, and you got to ask yourself, is it really worthwhile, or, or should we start looking at a, at a newer facility, a smaller facility? Well, Bill, interestingly enough, talking about private-public partnerships, I'm so proud of the fact about four or five years ago, Council went down the path and approved uh, the private-public partnerships, still owning the buildings, but with uh, Mercantes and Carmen's operating the Convention Centre, Global Spectrum operating Hamilton Place and First Ontario Centre, the money they've generated, the half a million dollars a year in operating costs that they have saved the taxpayers and wiped out. So there's another good example of a private-public partnership. But in terms of the future of that nearly 18,000-seat arena bill, I guess all options will be before us, and we've got to make the best prudent decision what to do. But if that kind of money is being talked about potentially, I mean, if you remember Mr. Basili, the last NHL opportunity we had about 10 years ago, he was then talking about 150 to 200 million dollars to bring it up to minimal NHL standards. Yeah, and and when you started to kind of peel back the layers on what he proposed to do the, to the arena, he's basically building a new arena. I mean, he's just going to take the roof off it and basically build something else around that that shell that you've already got. So, you know, it, it's it's old, it's tired, it doesn't meet standards anymore. We really have to ask ourselves what 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 we should do with that building. What would you like to see happen, Tom? I mean, ultimately, you're going to have to vote on this. Yeah, I, Bill. Let's, I, let's assume. Know, uh, let's assume that you know. I know that you're always and a prudent council is always going to say, "Well, it's going to cost too much money. We can't build a new one, or we should fix this up, but we don't have the money." But let's let's set the financial issue aside right now. What do you think should be done with that facility? Well, uh, Bill, you know, it's it's been, if you will, a cornerstone of development in the downtown with Jackson Square from the 70s, and when the uh, Cops Coliseum, now First Ontario Centre, was built in '85. So, I mean, even the existence and the presence of that facility, I think, is important to be maintained in some fashion or form. 
Now, I want to be respectful of Michael Landauer, who has just been wonderful, along with Bob Young. We've been lucky to have two Absolutely. Uh, owners of clubs that otherwise probably losing lots of money, but just love the city and love having the team, owning the team, and keeping the teams in Hamilton. But I've always felt with the uh, OHL Bulldogs now, I've always felt like the Andrew Chuck Arena, maybe doubling the 2,000 seat size of that to 4,000 seat would be a better uh, venue for uh, the Bulldogs. But, Bill, uh, in terms of the future, I know right now if the price tag is for the city of Hamilton to cough up $60, $80 million, Bill, with the basic infrastructure of roads, sidewalk, bridges that we have to upgrade and improve, I got a feeling there'll be no appetite for that kind of investment from council. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Premier Kathleen Wynne says negotiations will soon restart with the province's doctors who have been without a physician services agreement for three years now. Uh, it was a lengthy and messy dispute. Of course, the Ontario Medical Association uh, said doctors would not return to the table unless the government induces binding arbitration. But the health minister says, eh, I don't think so. We might talk about that, but we're not going to do it. So why are they at the table? What are they looking for? And what's the outcome going to be this time? It didn't go well last time. Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Nadia Alam, who is, of course, with Concerned Ontario Doctors. Uh, Nadia, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Bill, thank you so much for having me on the show. Please call me Nadia. No, certainly. Okay. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. Um, as, as I mentioned in my preamble, it did not go well this time. Are you optimistic that there could be a better result this time? I am wary. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, you know how it is, right? It's been a very messy fight. It's been very difficult to get the government to listen um, and to value our input. They've been out pulling PR stunts and playing political games. And it's been very frustrating to watch, not just as a physician, but as someone who uses the healthcare system, right, for my family, for my patients, and for myself. So it's it's really frustrating that they're busy playing games when we need serious discussion. So I'm hopeful but wary. Well, and let's let's talk maybe about the the chemistry here. I mean, you know, the OMA had some problems with the way the negotiations went last time, certainly with the government, Nadia. Uh, but they also had problems with their executive, their their bargaining committee too. They walked out on mass. There's a new group uh, that's representing the OMA right now. Uh, are you familiar with them, and do you have confidence that it could be a more productive, uh, inter, 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 you know, intercourse that's going on here with the government? So I should clarify. The OMA's executive committee did resign about a week or two ago. Um, They are not directly involved with negotiations. They set the direction for the Ontario Medical Association's PR campaign and their government relations and and negotiation strategies, but they're not the ones who are on the negotiations committee. I do know a lot of the doctors on the negotiations committee, and I do have faith in them. I think they've listened to members. They They get what members want and need. And so they're going to take that to the table, which is really what the OMA should be doing, right? At the end of the day, sure. it's our only negotiating body. It has to hold doctor interests at heart, but it also needs to be a voice for health care reform. Is it there's a, two things going on there, right, is, that we need the OMA to step up to. Is it important, Nadia, to get the, the, the hearts and minds of the public behind you on this? I think it's important for the, I think, honestly, the public wants doctors to have a fair contract. Right. And sure. That's about it. But I think what the public wants more is for doctors, nurses, and government, and all frontline healthcare workers, as well as patients and caregivers, to work together to fix the healthcare system. I mean, you saw the report that came out yesterday from the Commonwealth, and 
from uh, Kaihai that basically said Canada has the worst wait times in, when you compare it to uh, other first world, world countries around the world. The worst, worst wait times. And that's exactly what we see on the front lines. That's exactly what patients see on the front lines. That has to be fixed. It just cannot continue. But here's the problem, and this is what I find frustrating. I'd like to get your your perspective on this, if I could, too, Nadia. I I don't know that the government listens to doctors and nurses when they talk about how they want to, quote-unquote, fix the system. I totally agree with you. I think that part has to change. I don't think they listen either, and that's certainly true of that patient's first act that they've kind of barreled through, right? They've put that through. They put it through without frontline input. They put it through without input from patients and caregivers. And now, three months in, actually barely three months in, we're already seeing more bureaucracy being funded over patient services. That's not what I wanted, and that's not what my patients wanted. That's not even what my parents wanted out of this Patients First Act. I, I mean, it just seems reasonable. And, and, and <laughs> that, I mean, you're the, you're the front line. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. I mean, doctors and nurses are the ones delivering the system. They're the ones that deal with the people on a, first, on, on a personal basis. And, and I would think that they should be at the table to talk about this. Because as, as you and I have talked about in the past, Lenadia, there are temp- templates for better systems and better deliveries of health care in other parts of the world. Uh, and, and that should be part of this discussion. And I, I don't know that it's happening around this province. I totally agree with you. I think what the government's basically doing is building a kitchen without talking to the cook and the staff who work in it. It's just not going to work. It's, it's going to fail unless the government changes its attitude towards frontline workers and towards patients. And my hope is that they will. A part of me is distrustful, though, because elections are around the corner. The liberal ratings are at the lowest they've been for decades. And that makes me wary of any promises that they make. I, I, I think the time for empty promises, the time for PR stunts, the time for political gains has long passed. It's, it's time to actually act with integrity and make meaningful change. And I really hope the government's going to do that. And if they're not, we're going to see through them and vote them out. Well, it's interesting as well because the Minister of Health is not a bureaucrat. He's a doctor, um, and a doctor with an incredible, you know, reputation. And, you know, Eric Hoskins has done a lot of wonderful things in his career, and, and, and he should be admired for that. But it, it kind of looks like they revert back to, uh, you know, the, the political rhetoric as soon as they get to that, that position in that office there. And, and the, the number one answer every time is, well, yeah, we, we just don't have the money for this system. Uh, and and that's 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 not good enough. I mean, you know, nobody wants to pay more for anything. I get that, but we also understand that you got to pay for value too. Yep, yep, and I totally agree. I don't know what's going on at the Ministry of Health. I don't know why good doctors like Eric Hoskins go in and outcome politicians instead. I, I don't understand that. I can't speak to it because I, I'm I'm just a doctor in a small town who's just struggling with the system, but. What I do find frustrating is that it's true. We don't have much money. Nobody wants to pay taxes. People are drowning under hydro bills and taxes right now. We need better value from our health care system. And increasing bureaucracy is not the way to go for it. Right? That, that's not going to increase the kind of services my patients need. My patients need home care workers who come to their house and give them their medications, help them bathe. Uh, do all of that. My patients need surgeries. My patients need hospital beds. My my patients need an emergency department where they're not stuck waiting for 10 hours just to see a doctor or a nurse. Like that's, 
of, of hiring more vice presidents and more managers doesn't fix those fundamental problems. Well, and again, I had this discussion the other day when we got into a, a little mini debate here about health care and, and the, the delivery of health care and the way things should be going. Uh, is the discussion invariably circles around hospitals? And I can understand that. That's what you know, the vision I think we all probably conjure up when we use the word health care or the term health care. But, but you just touched on something else. There are supposed to be other elements to that as well, long-term care facilities, hospice facilities, mm-hmm. home care, things like that. And, and the government is, is extremely reticent to start talking about that because they don't fund those things well enough. Well, it's supposed to be cradle-to-the-grave care. That's the care I provide in my office. That's the kind of care. Yeah, but I, I don't want to go to the grave the sooner than I, than I should, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true, right? And you want to be comfortable at home. You want to know that when you're old, when you're frail we're going to be able to take care of you. You're not going to be alone. I had a patient turn to me the other day. She's 89 years old. She's been very independent for most of her life, but now she has dementia and it's getting harder and harder. And she said, you know, doctor, I remember the old days when you went to see a doctor, you went to see a nurse, you got better. Now it feels like you go see a doctor, they fill out a form, home care coordinator comes up, a manager comes up and talks to you, a supervisor comes up and talks to you, you talk to 10 people and you, have, you hear about 10 reports being written in, and at the end of the day, you're still sitting at home alone. No further ahead. Well, and I thought, that's, that's true. That's exactly what's wrong with this system. The, the, the problem here is, and, it, and, and I, I'm sympathetic to your situation too, Nadia, and, and doctors around. I mean, I, I have a great relationship with my GP and, and a fabulous doctor, but I mean, they, oh. you've got to be frustrated from time to time because those other facets, those other parts of the healthcare system that you would like to direct your patient to are not always available. As a matter of fact, in some cases, they don't even exist. Yep. Well, no man is an island unto themselves, right? Like a doctor doesn't work alone. I need nurses around me. I need hospitals around me. I need surgeons around me. I need home care and personal support and, and nurses who visit patients to give medications at home. We need all of that to be able to do a good job. That's what a healthcare system is supposed to do. I don't see that system happening. I see things breaking down, right? Like nursing homes, they're just overloaded with need. They can't even, you can't even get into a nursing home now unless you're on a crisis list. If you aren't on a crisis list, you're doomed to stick, still wait for about five years before you get into a nursing home. That's just unacceptable. We have to do better. We have to do better by our patients, especially the ones who've spent a lifetime paying taxes into this system. They're not getting good return for their investment. They just aren't, and it's not fair. What's, uh, what's the tone of the discussion going to be like, and what are you going to be talking about if, in fact, you get back to the table with the province on this? Uh, invariably, I know how the province is going to characterize this. They're just going to say, well, doctors just want more money. Uh, and, and and I'm sure, obviously, that you know the fees are going to be part of that discussion. But but what's what's on the agenda for the doctors? My biggest hope is that we come out of this with a different relationship with the government. It has to be a relationship where there's mutual respect and mutual understanding. Doctors get the position that politicians are under, right? The pressures they face to balance a budget, to make sure money is spent wisely, to get value for the money, the taxes that people entrust the government to spend. But we need the government to understand our perspective too and respect it as well, right? Otherwise, we're going to continue getting more bills and more laws passed that are going to change healthcare without truly improving it. 
is, there's got to be a frustration here for you, Nadia, and, and I'm, by you, I mean the all-inclusive you in the in the medical profession. Uh, when you look at this government, and, and subsequent, you know, governments before this too, because this is not the first time. It's not just the liberal government. The the, the conservatives were like this. In fact, the NDP were in the, in the early '90s were very similar to this too. They they paint doctors as as the bad guys. You you guys just want money. You just want to make your five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars a year, and then <laughs> go off to your place in Arizona for three months and not be available for your patients. And and that's the characterization. Yet, on the other hand, and, and if, well, they're trying to throw darts at somebody else, they seem to be bending over backwards to accommodate those in the education field, but not in the medical field. Well, they're doing that right now. Yeah. Right? Because don't forget, about a year or so ago, they were fighting hard and dirty with the teachers, too. They're, this is sort of what this government does, and other governments have done when it comes to negotiations, right? They vilify the people who are they are negotiating with, and they, they fight with them. They fight dirty and this is their approach to negotiations, and it's got to stop. Like, we just we can't keep doing this over and over again. Speaking for doctors, this is our fourth go around around with this government for negotiations. And my hope is that if it's truly a genuine change in their behavior, they're not going to stoop to the same dirty tactics again. The uh, doctors have been asking for binding arbitration in in these negotiations. Uh, yeah. Dr. Hoskins has suggested they're not willing to do that, but they are willing to talk about it. And I don't know what talking about it means if they're not going to do it at the end of the day. I mean, <laughs> why have the discussion right. if you already know the conclusion? But, yeah, but be that as it may, is that a deal breaker for you, that, yes. that, that arbitration? Yes. Explain it why. It has, to be, it has to be there. The reason for this is basically when you look at negotiations as a process, when negotiations fail, you ha- you ha- you're left with two situations, walkout or lockout. Neither can be done by doctors, right? Because we're an essential service. So we have a whole list of essential services in this province. Um, Policemen, firemen, paramedics. Um, Among that list, when negotiations fail, all of those essential services use binding arbitration to make sure the system keeps functioning, even if negotiations have failed, right? Make Mm -hmm. sure that this relationship keeps going, all of that Doctors are the only ones who are not on that list. And in fact, if you look at Canada, across Canada, there are a lot of other doctor associations that do have binding arbitration just to avoid chaos, right, like this, where, where negotiations fail, the government goes and does its own thing, starts cutting funding, starts making crazy nonsense policies and rules to try and that make it more and more difficult to provide the care that patients actually need. You know, all of these political stunts that I'm talking about. Um, So having binding arbitration there as a safeguard against negotiations failing and the government going off the rails, it's a total deal breaker, right? It has to be there. That piece has to be there. It's an essential piece. We're essential workers. We're the only ones not on that list who don't have binding arbitration. And it makes no sense that the government won't give it to us. Well, I can only speculate what their rationale might be, but the, the, the first one that comes to mind is that they don't want to have it there because they're afraid that obviously they'd rule in your favor, not in the government's favor. That's what I wonder. I wonder if they're worried that a neutral arbitrator will actually look at what's been going on, look at all the evidence in, during negotiations, and say, you know what, you guys have not been dealing fairly. Uh, when do you anticipate those, these discussions to start? Uh, my hope is, I, I honestly don't know the details to that. I know that we have a negotiations committee. We've got all the pieces in place to start negotiations. So now it'll be up to 
um, the committees and, and the negotiations advisors and the law firms that are involved to start figuring out a schedule of negotiations, to start figuring out what we're going to start first. I know that from the doctors, what we want first is a safeguard. We want to know that these negotiations are serious. We want to know that these negotiations are genuine. That means having binding arbitration there just in case things fall apart. And, and again, to, to emphasize that, and just look at it anywhere else. I mean, as you say, when when negotiations fail in any other uh, contract, there's discussions between an employer and employees, and that's really what this is here. There are other options. I mean, this is how many years now you've been going out with, a, with a three years now, I think, without a deal? Yep. Yep, three years now without a deal, and, and they walk away. Well. The table, you know, the, the discussions break down. Uh, if that were to happen to, you know, public service workers, for instance, they they would they could walk out, they could go on strike, they couldn't do anything. You just have to continue to work as if everything is fine, but it's not fine. Yep, yep, I totally agree. I totally agree. The the gulf between doctor and government is wide, and it's going to take a lot of work to bridge that gap. It's going to take a lot of work, but it's getting to willing partner most of all. Right? I don't want this to be just because elections are around the corner. I want the government to say, you know what, we paid attention to the report that came out yesterday. We paid attention to what doctors and nurses are saying. It's time to grow up and have a grown-up conversation about health care. That's well, what I'm really hoping for. To everybody's mutual benefit. I mean, this is uh, the exactly. government's looking at this as a line item in their their provincial budget. Uh, but this healthcare is a lot more important than that, and and I, you know I've done a little reading on this too. Uh, actually, you spurred on by some of the discussions you and I've had in the past, Nadia. Uh, and I see what goes on in 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 the UK, for instance. I see what goes on in in all three Scandinavian countries. They do it yeah. better than we do, and Maybe. yeah, it does cost a little bit more. But you know something? Ask anybody, stop anybody on the street in Stockholm or in London, and they'll tell you how wonderful their healthcare system is. They don't complain about the price of it. It's all about delivery, isn't it? Yep. Well, if you get good value for your money, you're willing to pay the money. That's what it comes down to. Right now, people are complaining about all the taxes because they're not getting good value for their money. They're not getting good value in terms of infrastructure. They're not getting good value in terms of education. They're not getting good value in terms of health care. Right? We would pay money if we knew that that money was being used wisely. And honestly, the fact that people are complaining about taxes tells me that they don't trust this government to spend wisely. This government has a lot of making up to do to taxpayers across Ontario. They and, really do. And you know, Nadia, when I've had discussions with the Premier and, and ministers about this, I mean, they always come back and say, you know what, almost half of every tax dollar you pay is already going into health care. We can't afford to do this. And I said, but you're missing the point. It's where you're spending the money. Yep. I, and, and, yep. and, and, you know, when you look at e-health, I mean, people say, oh, e-health was a way. No, e-health is wonderful. It's a great idea, and we should be doing it. But the, the administrative cost of this and the bureaucracy is killing it. Same thing with Orange Ambulance. Of course we need, uh, uh, you know, we need ambulances. We need that sort of thing. But, the, the, again, the administrative cost and the way they manage the whole program, that's where most of the money went. And I'm a, uh, the biggest concern we've got right now is that when you look at health care and primary health care that you've just been talking about, I'm afraid it's the same situation. That There's way too much money being spent in areas where it shouldn't be spent. Yep, I totally agree. And you know what the crazy thing is? There are innovative projects all across Ontario that have, success, that have succeeded beyond wildest dreams. Like take Georgian Bay, for example. The doctors there said, we need to have a connected computer systems so that patient records can move with the patient, so that information is safe, secure, and is used to help the patient get better, right? 
they managed to connect the computer systems, not just in their specialist offices and their family doctor's offices, but the hospital, the pharmacies, and the nursing home. They did what eHealth has been promising to do for a decade, and they did it for very low cost. How can they do it and eHealth not? Why can't the government look at what the Georgian Bay docs did in their area and scale that up for the rest of the province? What is it about being a government that makes you so proud that you can't say, you know, I'm sorry, we messed up, we're going to fix it, so let's fix it. We're still waiting That's for what that. I don't understand, but again, I'm not a politician. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. President Donald Trump held a press conference to announce his new suggestion for Labor Secretary. But, uh, well, it got into a, a Q&A after that and, uh, and rants and raves and uh, almost a surreal experience for the media that were there and everybody watching at home. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, joins us to talk about it here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Good morning, Laura. How are you doing today? I'm well, Bill. Thank you. I was transfixed. I, I just flipped around. I didn't even know who was going to do this yesterday. I got to turn the television on when I got home yesterday afternoon. And I couldn't, I couldn't take my eyes off this. I couldn't believe what I was watching. Well, Trump is correct. He does know how to get ratings. And while it was set up as a press conference about the Labor Secretary, what it really was, I think, was Trump saying, I've had enough of watching all of my guys, Spicer and Miller and Kellyanne Conway, for her part, try to come out and defend me. He was getting pounded day after day after day in the, in the paper he cares about the most, the New York Times, about this Russia connection and collusion. And he saw this building, building, building media narrative. And he's a guy who spent his entire life, you know, really, at least the last 50 years, playing with the media and making the media do what he wants. It's partly how he became president. So the fact that it looked like he was getting out of control of the media and nobody could defend him the way that he could, he decided that he was just going to go out there and do it himself. Uh, as one person tweeted, he basically said to Spicer and Kellyanne Conway, here, hold my beer and let me go do this. He doesn't drink alcohol, obviously. But this is Trump saying, I got here by doing it my way. I've tried to pretend to be presidential for a couple of weeks. It's not working out. So I'm just going to full throttle, go back and have a one-on-one fight with the press. And his base loved it. Yeah, the base loved it. They could be sure. I saw some of the social media comments on that after. And the message he seemed to be giving to CNN and, and, and other news agencies was basically, why can't you guys be more like Fox News? I mean, that, that's the tone I got. Well, there was such a patheticness to it. You know, I think of the Greek word pathos. You know, he just, he said, you know, I'm not such a bad guy. It, it even reminded me of that scene in um, Scarface when he goes, you know, oh, I'm the bad guy in the restaurant, right? <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's like he's standing there going, why don't you guys love me? Why do you guys hate me? Well, you know, it's a tough job I've got, and I'm doing my best. You guys are so mean to me. Like, it was something that we heard Sean Spicer try to say for him about a week ago, but it came right out of his mouth. And as Anderson Cooper said, it wasn't the press whining about the press conference after. It was really the president whining in the press conference. Why can't you treat me like Fox's morning show? And, but you know what I thought was so refreshing was that, um, what's his name, Shep on Fox, yeah. did this sort of two-minute takedown, two-minute takedown where he just said, you know what, this is unacceptable, um, that the fact that he questioned the reporters and he and he treated them badly for asking important questions for the American people about Russia, you know, to have a major guy on Fox do that just tells me that, you know, Trump might have rallied his, his 
what, 36% of his base might be thrilled. But what about the rest of America, if you can have Shep on Fox do that? Well, and Bill O'Reilly gave him a, kind of a rough ride, too, on Super Bowl Sunday. I mean, it, it wasn't a bear hug sort of thing, but, I mean, he, he asked some pointed questions, and, and he called Trump out for, you know, doing the dance around the answers. So it's it's not as if it's a love-in. The Fox Morning Show is a totally different situation. Uh, according to them, I mean, you know, Trump can do no wrong. But but you would, you talked to us earlier, Laura, in, in, in past discussions about, about from a, a public relations standpoint and a marketing standpoint, repeat the message, repeat. That's why, you know, you see the same commercial on television 45 times on one show because it, it will be ingrained in the and he's 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 doing this with the media too the failing it used, you mentioned the new york times it's the failing new york times uh notwithstanding the fact that apparently the subscriptions are higher than they've ever been but i guess they're a failing newspaper according to him because they don't they don't love them uh and on and on cnn fake news all this sort of stuff everything is is the, the prefix is always fake or or failing and, and he's really trying to to I guess, get people to feel that the media can't be trusted. I'm the only one that you can listen to and actually, you know, trust. And that's that's, uh, that's pretty heavy stuff. Well, it is. So there's a few things going on. I think he's used those bully tactics his entire life. If he just diminishes his opponent, if he labels them like he did with Rubio, Little Rubio and Low Energy Jeb, and, you know, whenever he comes up with these nicknames or he says, oh, you're fake, you're a loser. I mean, this is what's always worked for him. Some people love it. They think it's hilarious. It's like watching wrestling, you know, and and I think he's done that successfully his whole life because he's had the ultimate authority to act that way. And it's, and it's bullied people. That's just been how Donald Trump is. And so now that he's in the White House, what makes it pernicious, what makes it harmful, is that he's not just simply going after everybody who doesn't love him. He is systematically trying to delegitimize the media, which is in the Constitution as a check and balance on power. He is trying to delegitimize the judicial branch by saying so-called judges and challenging and saying he had a bad judge and a bad court and they're so political and unfair. So this is the kind of stuff uh, that autocrats do, that dictators do. They try to take down all the things that are going to get in their way. And so, yes, there is a very harmful, repeated drumbeat underneath every bit of drama and distraction that Trump throws out there, which says, I am the sole authority. I can't even trust my team. I don't trust the judiciary, neither should you. I don't trust, you know, the uh, media, neither should you. And just wait, just wait until the first time Mitch McConnell or anybody in Congress, any Republican, takes a serious block to something he wants to do, and suddenly it'll be you can't trust these lawmakers. They're all losers and this, that, and the other thing. So he's trying to make himself the sole decider, the sole power, and that is something that everybody around the world who knows anything about history, is, is watching very closely. Yes, he's the most entertaining version of that particular strategy, but it doesn't mean that that strategy is not in play. Yeah, and to go back to the information element, which I feel really bothersome. I mean, you know, he, he wants to take credit for everything. Uh, you know, he says, you know, the, the stock market's, you know, sky, the stock market's been fabulous for the last two years. Uh, it takes the odd dip from time to time. But, I mean, the U.S. economy was actually doing quite well, thank you very much. Uh, you know, he takes credit for job growth. Job growth has been up in the United States for the last, what, is it, 23 months, I think? Uh, steadily. Yeah, so, uh, now, there have been job losses, but mostly in the manufacturing sector, but that's not always because they've gone to Mexico. It's, it's, it's because of advanced manufacturing and things like this. But he, he, he deals really in, in half-truths, if there's any truth to it at all, and embraces that. 
I think it's it's worse than half truths. I think he he right out makes stuff up. But there was a Trump bump on the stock market. His taxation changes that he's proposing, his deregulations that he's proposing, his tearing up of TPP, his renegotiating NAFTA. These are things that make the stock market boom, and they hit record highs. And I'll give him that because the stock market is something that flexes daily based on what's going on in the world. Now, jobs reports, jobs growth, that is not something you can take claim of in four weeks. And the fact that he came in yesterday saying that he's in a terrible mess, well, compared to what Obama faced nine years ago, there's no way that Trump is in any kind of a mess. But Trump outright lies. He lies about the murder rate being the highest it's ever been. That is just simply nowhere near true. It had a bit of a spike in the last year, but compared to the overall murder rate, it's gone way, way down from decades ago. You know, he just flat out lies. And the best moment of the press conference yesterday, one that I hope will be taught in journalism schools forever, was when the New York Times reporter, having heard Trump lie about having the most electoral college wins votes since Reagan, stood up and said, well, actually, Obama had much more than you twice. And he said, well, I was talking about the GOP. And he said, well, actually, George W. Bush had more than you. And Trump said, well, somebody showed me that information. And the reporter didn't let up. He said, how can the American people trust you when you stand here and you give us false information? And he goes, well, I saw it. I've seen that information everywhere. Totally abdicated any responsibility for the fact that he was standing there behind the lectern with the presidential seal on it, lying, putting out false. Who cares where he saw it, who handed it to him or what website he was on? The president lied, and the New York Times reporter basically repeated that old saying, you know, if you tell, if you can't be trusted to tell the truth in trifles, how can you be trusted to tell the truth in matters of importance and significance? There's another element. I, I, I remember that incident, too, but the, the, it was the interaction he had with a CNN reporter, uh, who he, of course, accused of, you know, spreading false news and fake news, as, as it turned out. Uh, and, it, and it had to do, of course, with the, the interaction with the Russian government and, and the Trump team. This is going back before the election, but even before he got sworn in, too. And, and he called it fake news. He said it's fake news. And the reporter said, well, wait a second. These are from the intelligence agencies. This is true. There, there are, you know, it's chronicled that, yes, he was there. Yes, he made phone calls. He even admitted he did. So what, what, what about it is fake? And he said, well, the, it's the way you reported it is fake. Well, all they did was transcribe the information. I mean, he, he just conjures these things up here. And as you said earlier, the base buys it. doesn't matter what he says. So, you know, there's there's either the theory that he is crazy like a fox, that he, you know, it's that old uh, that old strategy that you had back with Nixon, the madman in the Oval Office. Keep the world off balance, keep the enemies off balance, keep everybody guessing what the heck's coming next. And so it could be that, uh, or it could just be the, the plain crazy, the idea that, as David Gergen said last night, we watched a president unhinged from reality. We watched somebody who has his own version of the events around him based on his own need to always be winning and he has a bunch of yes men around him and yes women who are confirming that bias that he has about his own dominance and success and so you know it's it's either trump is playing himself and the world or he is being played by his own his own narcissism or his own illness or whatever is going on but people are starting to really question and, and there is a provision in the constitution about a president who might not be mentally stable and so watching that yesterday, the, the some of the most respected people out there, like the reporter who broke the Watergate case and like David Gergen, who's worked with five presidents, is not partisan, basically are sitting there saying, 
this person might not be well, like literally not well enough to be in control of the world. So you have to kind of look at that and say, is this strategy possibly? Is this just Trump unhinged? Maybe. But it's something that cannot be let go of just because he's entertaining and his base and Rush Limbaugh think it's fun. Yeah. Uh, how how insecure is this guy? I mean, you study body language, and and, mm-hmm. and 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 let's face it, even even what he was saying yesterday. You know, how many times did he say, "I'm a nice guy"? How many times did I say, "I won that"? I got ratings. I did this. He's he really has to let people know that you know I'm I'm the most important guy and the most talented guy around here. it goes beyond narcissism, yeah. doesn't it? Well, it's, you know, and, and I'm not a psychologist, but there have been lots of psychologists who have broken with the convention of not speaking about a president's mental health, who have felt compelled professionally to, to speak out. And, and there's, a, there's a level of narcissism that he apparently embodies, which is just off the charts, right? It's just something that we're not used to seeing. And if, if people are like that, they, they tend to conceal it better. He's got the biggest platform in the world, and he still is incapable of, of accepting the fact that he succeeded because he didn't win the popular vote because he didn't get the most electoral college votes. You know, he has this constant need to be completely the best or he's not good enough is, at all. Is that why he's and, obsessed with Hillary? Well, I think so. Yes, of course. He's you still know, talking why, about her. And that's why every time the Russia narrative comes up, in spite of all the potential conflicts that there are with Russia and with his administration and his and his business dealings, which his son even alluded to, you know, way back in the day, in spite of all of that mounting evidence and, and mounting challenge and lawsuits and everything that's going on, he still thinks every time someone brings up Russia, it's to say that he didn't beat Hillary Clinton, that Russia beat Hillary Clinton. He cannot handle that narrative. And so what you're looking at, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's disturbing, but what I don't think he's taken into account is that, first of all, the American public generally knows when they're being lied to, and, and they've, this is now President Liar, and everybody has said that, and, and it is, it's just proven. Nobody's trying to be hard on him. It's just a fact. He lies. But the other thing that you're looking at here is you've got the American people saying, okay, hold on a second. Hold on just a second. This We've now staffed up the New York Times. We've now staffed up the Washington Post. They've got a whole investigative unit on him. CNN's getting the best ratings it's ever had. If he thinks for one minute that they're going to take the foot off the gas on this Russia connection just because he threw out a spectacle yesterday, he's mistaken. The media has gotten smart to his game, and they are resourced now, and they're doing well. Yeah, as uh, you know, in contrast that, of course, to the back of Odward and Bernstein a couple of minutes ago during Watergate. I mean, it's essentially mm-hmm. two guys doing it. You've got whole departments that are are geared toward this right now, uh, trying to find something. Uh, not unlike what uh, Trump himself used to say. I, I sent a bunch of guys to Hawaii to find out about Obama's birth certificate, and uh, they're going to uncover some stuff. You got to figure where there's smoke, there's fire. This, this is not going to go away. And he seems to think that if I yell along long enough and loud enough, that they'll back off. I, I think what he did is infuriated the press yesterday. It didn't he? Didn't intimidate them at all. Well, he's causing them to get their footing and to realize that in spite of ratings and in spite of their corporate ownership, that they are part of an essential constitutional component, and they are working together. So when Shep on Fox came to the, the, the defense of the CNN reporter, who he says, I don't even know, but I know he's a good reporter. Mr. President, this is not okay. We are not going to accept this. The American people, you can insult us all you want, but we speak 
for the American people. We ask questions for the American people. So what it is really doing is helping the press to dig deep and find why they got into journalism in the first place, to, to tell them, you know what, we need this more than we ever have before. And I think we've seen the same thing in the intelligence community. Yes, it's a, it's a crime to leak classified information, but we are still seeing leak after leak after leak because they also took an oath to protect the Constitution, to uphold the Constitution, not to protect the executive branch, but to protect the Constitution. So Trump has not engendered loyalty. He has attacked everybody, and there are people who see him as an existential constitutional threat, and they will do their duty above what he wants them to do or how he tries to bully them. So I think we're, we're really in unprecedented territory. And actually, the, it was Bernstein who said yesterday, I have not called anything uh, to the level of Watergate in all these years. But this is starting to feel like that. And we heard the same thing from Dan Rather. So we are in, in some pretty thick thickets for Trump. And just because he can, you know, sing and dance and cause a fuss, uh, I don't think he's going to get out of this. There's, a, there's an element that, you know, his base, because I see the stuff on social media, I get it, and we'll get we'll get it, you and I both get it after we have this conversation, I know from... We got it before uh, we had the conversation. Well, yeah, I saw some of that stuff earlier this morning as well. But but what they're they're dismissive of is the fact that, because they always say, well, it's you, you left-wingers, you know, that don't like this guy, you can't get over the fact that he, he won the election. And it, that's true, I can't get over the fact that he won. But it's, it's the manner in which he's done it, and it's the manner in which he's behaving after that. And when you have conservatives... I don't mean small. I just mean small. Like David Frum and and you mentioned a few minutes ago, and so many others that are saying this guy's this is the wrong guy. Go ahead and be a conservative. John McCain. Look at the people in the Senate and in the Congress right now that are starting to to, to push back against Trump. And and this those are the Republicans that are doing that. They're the, uh, David Frum. I mean, you follow him on Twitter as I mm-hmm. do. He's he's beside himself now that 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 his idea of conservatism is being tossed around like this. Well, and even beyond that, David Frum, who is a real intellectual of our time, uh, you know, I'm sure many on the left don't appreciate the access of evil characterization he wrote for George W. Bush, and that'll not, be part of his legacy. Not one of his yeah. shining moments, yeah. No, but that was a. But he's a brilliant man. Yeah. And he wrote he wrote an essay in the Atlantic about the build how an autocrat could actually come into power in a constitutional democracy, and I think everybody should read it. It was a real warning for everybody to to really take a gut check on what's happening. And I want to say this: I mean, what else signals that Trump is really? not in control than when he first of all had to fire his security advisor after what four weeks Flynn and then the guy they tapped next that they had done some vetting and some interviewing with you know after he saw that press conference he said he turned down the job this is a guy who was in the military his whole life who serves at the pleasure of the president turned down the president because he said it was a rise runs with lit sandwich I mean what is that? You cannot make this stuff up. Trump is not respected. As Tom Friedman frequently says, he has formal authority, but no moral authority. And, and that's a hard way to govern. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.